Hi, this is Stephanie Hansen, and you are listening to the Makers of Minnesota podcast, a podcast where we talk to cool people doing cool things. And I'm here talking with Jill Colella. Is that how you say your last name, Jill? Yes. Oh, good. I got it right. All the L's, five of yes. them. Um, you are with Teach Kids to Cook. Is that the name of the like parent company? Yep, that is uh, the umbrella, and everything else falls under it. Okay, and you have lots of things, because you have Ingredients Magazine, you have Butternut Magazine, you have Food Stories Podcast, right? That's right. And is, did I miss anything? Uh, you know, oh, actually, doing yeah. probably TV, too. Um, I would like that to come. That's going to be called After School Snack. I like it. Yeah. And um, I am also, a, I write a lot of books for kids, and I've got 12 coming out in the next year. Okay. I cannot wait to talk to you. So I met you at a podcast conference, and I think you had sent me a copy of the magazine before. And the magazine is like five and a half by eight and a half. It's folded over. There are two magazines. Butternut is for the three to six-year-olds, and then Ingredient is for the little bit older kid. Yep. What is it about like teaching kids to eat that really inspired you that you are putting together this whole media company for kids? Well, it's it's a, a hilarious joke by Karmic Design. I mean, ask my mother, she will laugh hard because she'll tell you stories about the six-year-old crying at the dinner table with, you know, shake and bake pork chops in front of her. Sure. Demanding a peanut butter and jelly sandwich. And it works. So thanks, Mom. Fast forward to my 20s when I was a complete freak show. Um, you try to have a job in the corporate world with fancy lunches and go on dates. Well, you know, a McDonald's cheeseburger and pizza isn't cutting it. Because is that um, really pretty much all you ate? I was a very picky eater. and um, Was it texture or taste? It's all different kinds of things. Um, and people don't realize just how many strange places that like food stuff can come from. So here's a weird fun fact. Sure. I was 20 before I ate like white rice before. And you're like, how do you get to 20 in America or whatever without eating just I white totally rice? I can see how you could. There's a lot of yeah. choices. Yeah. Um, the thing is, my dad was a Vietnam veteran, uh -huh. and he did not like the smell. Sure. So we didn't have in our house. Um, same with fish. So it's like, you know, pizza and uh, McDonald's cheeseburgers just are this easy option that are, you know. And were your mom, the... you mentioned that your dad had an aversion to the smell. Were your mom and dad also not big, like, vegetable eaters or fruit eaters? So kind of you just ate what you ate? Well, you know, I love my mom, and she was this sort of stereotypical, like, 70s, 80s homemaker mom. Yeah. Where everything delicious sort of came out of bottles, boxes, jars, and sure. cans. And all of our um, moms, like, the, I remember my mom trying to explain to me what a revelation it was when Swanson's frozen meals came on the market. She was like, you kids love them. It gave me a break from cooking. I was all about it. She was like, I couldn't buy enough of those things for you. And then I remember Stouffer's macaroni and cheese kind of tasted like my mom's. Mm -hmm. It was fantastic. And, you know, the other thing, too, is both my parents came from families where if you didn't finish what was on your plate, there might be like corporal punishment consequences. Yeah, club. So they were lenient in that respect. And my other two sisters, they're much, they were more adventurous eaters than I was. Um, and I just said no. And, you know, I also have this, I'll call it my food trauma incident as a child. But, um, you know, it's not really that traumatic in the grand <laughs> scheme of things. Um, but uh, my parents argued over this dish that was at my grandparents' house. Um, and it was some kind of casserole. And uh, I remember my dad being very sort of angry. And he's more distrustful about what's in food. And it turned out that it was ground bear. And... 
after that, I sort of just didn't trust anything in food anymore. How um, did you figure it out? So they were trying to feed you ground bear and like trick you a little bit? Well, I think that's what my parents were arguing about. Did my mom know what was in that when, you know, she served some yeah. to my dad? And it was like a big, large family potluck. Um, and, you know, little fun fact, another fun fact about me, um, my my mom is Canadian and her family is Native American or Aboriginal in Canada. Sure. So having bear, uh, you know, no in, big whoop. not a big deal. I um, have that almost exact same story with a venison casserole. And we didn't know, but our parents knew. And we were, they were in the garage, like laughing. Oh my God, the kids are eating it. The kids are eating it. And they told us later, we were like horrified. Yeah. And you know, it's like, it was the the anger between my parents that made me so distrustful. Yeah. And I, I still carry that. I have a hard time eating things like at a potluck. Okay. That mm-hmm. is really interesting. So you're someone that has, I'm going to say a complicated, but beautiful relationship with food. How did you decide to go into the publishing business and make this magazine? And from a business standpoint, how does this even work? Good question. Um, Again, it's hilarious karmic design. So I had a very corporate job. I worked on Capitol Hill. This is when I realized I sort of needed to train myself in food literacy. And um, then eventually... My boss, who I loved, retired. I ended up you know, reporting to someone I did not see eye to eye with. Needless to say, I burned that bridge and walked out, you know, and funny story, I was already downtown in D.C. and the Julia Child kitchen exhibit had just opened at the Smithsonian. Yes. I hadn't been there yet. So I went there with my like sad bag of like desk drawer stuff <laughs> in my like commuter lady suit and sneakers. After you walked out of your yep, job. Yep. Funny. And um, went and stood in Julia's kitchen and said like universe like deliver something to me and I was a new bride at the time and I wanted to sort of please my husband who was a real sort of meat and potatoes eater and sort of you know get on the same page literally with what we were eating together and um, I decided that I was going to become a personal chef so I went and I got trained to be a personal chef and when you are like 25 and you haven't had rice before until you're like 20 you can really talk yourself out of, you know, am I capable of cooking for this sophisticated DC clientele? Sure. So I talked myself out of it. And um, I was like, well, how can I use this? And I started a hands-on kids cooking class business. So I would travel to clients' homes and basically Chef Jill would give kids cooking birthday parties. And it snowballed. I got great press. I fell in with um, the NBA team there and um, just kept doing more and more parties and it turned into a relationship with the publisher. Sure. And I started writing kids' cookbooks. So, you know, it's um, hilarious. And I'm maybe the least qualified person and the most qualified person. All at the um, same time. And then, so, I'm sorry. No, go ahead. Flash forward. Um, I thought, you know, I loved getting food magazines in the mail or, you know, looking at them at the store. And how did none exist for kids? There At the time, there were magazines about baby animals and dinosaurs, um, highlights, of course, but nothing around food. And food becomes relevant to us the first day that we show up on planet Earth. Right. So I had time. I had recently um, been let go of a teaching job. I've been, I was a classroom teacher for a long time um, because of the Great Recession, a private school closed sure. its program. And um, I had time. So I was like, I'm just going to make one of these magazines to see what it looks like. Get the thing that was in my head out into the world, and I have not stopped since. Uh, that was seventy-five issues ago. 
Wow. So there's no advertising in it. So does somebody underwrite it or how does the payment work or is it all subscription based? It's all subscription based. Who? How do you market it? How do you get subscribers in a world where magazine readership is dwindling and newspaper readership is dwindling as well? Well, the bread and butter is subscription agencies that work with schools and public libraries. So the great thing about magazines is that there's this built-in sales force of people presenting my magazines to these clients. Sure. And that has been the core of my business since the beginning. Although I did get lucky with press um, when I made the prototype and um, Apartment Therapy, if you know that website, featured um, ingredient at the time. And I did my first issue with 27 subscribers. So I'm a big fan of bootstrapping. And I think that, you know, you don't need to wait for venture capital or to win the Minnesota Cup to go forward. Just go forward. Oh, I'm so glad to hear you say that on a podcast like this, because I think so many people create barriers for themselves. And it sounds like you certainly have too, but that you learned from that and got to the other side. That's definitely it. And, you know, I would I would like literally laugh at you if like you told 18 year old me when you grow up, you're going to make like magazines about food for kids. Yeah. And, like you're hilarious. Um, but you might be like the perfect person to do it because of the way that you perceived food and because of the way you want to approach it. I, I looked through the you had a um, feature issue on pizza mm-hmm. and it was awesome. Like. A, you talked about different things you can put on pizza and introduce kids to new ingredients. You gave some sample recipes. You talked about yeast and how that works. Like, it was very fun. It was well shot. It was pretty. It was colorful. Like, if I had children, and I have a 20-year-old daughter who is, you know how you, if you're so alike, you kind of have friction all the time? Mm. That's her and I. And the other day, I heard her telling her dad she wanted to be a food writer. I'm like, huh, that's so funny. So funny how that works. Um this is a great magazine for kids. How much is a subscription? Um, Easy for me to say. Yep. Subscription. Both of them are $35. Ingredient is, and that hasn't changed since 2010 when I launched this. Sure. Um, ingredient is four issues a year, and then Butternut is six issues a year. It's so, they're so cute. Okay, so you then decided to take that into Food Stories, which is the podcast. That's right. Um, you know, I think when it comes to content, just producing and putting more out there is, is so good. And and for other people who may be, you know, aspiring business owners, like before you worry about what you have to do next, kind of look at already what you got. So the, the thing about what I do, you know, when I think that this is the, the long game and I'm like, I'd rather go outside and play than sit at my desk and lay this thing mm-hmm. out. Um, I know what I've created for myself is a treasure trove of evergreen content. Um, I've been lucky that I've written the majority of it which means I can do anything I want with my content. And evergreen content, for those of you that don't know, is something that it's evergreen. It stays in the zeitgeist and it stays popular forever. It's not something that's going to expire. And so what I did was start to go back through my older issues and see what were sort of interesting food stories and reuse that text that was already written to kind of reboot and add more energy and more information to and then do it in the digital medium. You are doing a lot of this by yourself, like in a vacuum. Is it lonely? Because I find when I do content by myself, like I have another podcast that I started dishing with Stephanie's dish because I wanted to talk about things that weren't necessarily food, but I didn't know how to do that in my current content platform. And I think I'm going to have to go to like an interview format because I'm so bored with myself. (laughs) You know, I 
if you would have told me I would have given this answer at 18, I would have laughed at myself again and be like, you are totally lame sauce, Jill. Um, and I would not have believed this. But, you know, again, talking to people who are sort of aspiring at a business or sort of in the like the hard yard middles, if you know your why, you can do anything. And um, for me, it is absolutely a thousand percent about the kids who I know are on the other end of the content. Uh, I don't have kids. It's a long story. It's not a good story. So all the kids who consume my content are my kids. Oh, I like that story. That's um, sometimes you find yourself in the weirdest places, don't you think? Absolutely. Okay. So you write the content, you have a podcast. Do you, can you reach kids on social media that are so young? Uh, I do have a presence on Facebook and Instagram. And most of my content there would be sort of questions to tee up discussions between, you know, a loving adult and their kiddo. Yeah. Uh, So, you know, um, instead of just pictures of delicious food or come get the recipe because kids don't have that kind of, you know, agency in their lives all the time, uh, maybe a picture of mango, yuck or yum, and then get people to respond to that. Cute. Um, There's a lot of shame, I feel like, for moms about food and around food. And I have a very complicated relationship with food that I have realized much more so as an older woman than I ever realized as like a 20 or 30 year old. And in fact, as I age, I feel like it's almost getting more complicated because I love food so much. It's such a community for me. It's healing. It's it's celebration. It's party. It's wellness. Like it's just everything. And yet Sometimes that's not always a good balance. Do you hear a lot from moms that they're really trying to put their kids on the right path? You know, I I hear people who get the subscriptions often for like feeding clinics. So if you've never heard of a feeding clinic, it's where kids who have disordered relationships with food go. Um, it's getting younger and younger. Uh, I hear from, you know, dietitians, nutritionists, those kinds of people who use what I do in um, that kind of uh, clinical setting. And part of the reason they like what I do is because I tend not to use the word healthy. Um, it's become this sort of catch-all. It's very loaded. Yeah, it means everything and it means nothing. And if you talk to kids, they're, you know, convinced that if you eat donuts, they're, it's going to cause cancer and it's poison. And, and you know, whatever works for your family, if your family doesn't eat donuts, I fully respect that. I'm not going to yuck your yum. Um, now, of course, you can't eat it every meal, every day. And there's a there's a place for explaining that, but um, I'm not even a fan of red light, green light, yellow light foods. I love the word nutritious, and I love wholesome, and I love talking about nutrient density. When we talk about globally eating, too, there's so much more globally or in world food than we're eating here in America. Like, this is a weird example, but crickets, you know, is something that a lot of people are eating in other parts of the world as a protein source. How do you introduce that and those ideas to kids? You know, I think without judgment around them, the tagline of ingredient is that it's the food magazine for kids curious about food. And, you know, it took me into my 20s to have curiosity supersede my fear around food. And so you can, you know, kids are amazing sponges who, if you present something in a non-threatening you know, non-prescriptive, non-judgmental way, they'll take it in and evaluate it. Um, I'll plug one of my competitors, or let's call it a complimentary magazine. Sure. It's called Chop Chop. 
and it is a not-for-profit, and it's you know got a whole sort of board of doctors and health people behind it. But one of the things that, that they are really good about is offering ethnically diverse foods. And, um, you know, food is a great bridge between people. And, um, you know, I think that's actually the place my magazines I want to do more, especially living in the Twin Cities. It's it's not hot dish. It's mung food. It's yeah, amazing. It's Somalian so crazy food. when people are like, oh, and then we had grape salad in Minnesota. It's like, <laughs> no, New York Times, nobody here is eating grape salad. But thanks. I uh, had an opportunity to talk with uh, Yia Vang, mm-hmm. uh, who I think would be a great guest if you're looking for stories. He, like, his whole approach to Hmong food is basically bringing you into his home. Like, the way his parents cooked, the things his parents cooked, how to make them approachable. It, it's just he's got a really great story. And there is such a good ethnic food story in the Twin Cities, which is probably surprising because we're pretty white. But right. the stuff that's happening here is pretty cool. And, you know, there's to me, there's validity in my mother, Loretta's um, family secret recipe for corn, which is, you know, open two cans of corn, put in saucepan and stick of butter, you know, because what you eat says so much about who you are and where you come from and and the way that you take on the world, but it is, um, it's not anything that has a limit. Um, and I'm, I'm living proof of that. I can see TV and the digital space and video as being a big driver of interest in the magazine. Is that something that you see down the road? Because you are a professionally trained chef, right? So are you still doing the cooking classes and could you get kids in an environment like that? Oh, I would love to do that. Um, What's the barrier? You know, it's a um, good question. And to double back to your shame question, you know, it's funny. Um, I was interviewed by Oprah and Bob Green, if you know who I do. Bob Green is. Of course I do. And um, it was when Oprah. Bob Green is Oprah's personal, was his personal, her personal chef when she was at her size sixiest. Yep. And um, she she had gained all her weight back. 206 pounds, um, and this is probably 10 years ago now, and, and she sort of famously put her current self and her skinny self on the cover of the magazine. Well, I picked up that magazine in the airport. I'm not generally somebody who, like, writes into Oprah, but I did because at the time I was 106 pounds, or 206 pounds, just like Oprah. Uh-huh. And her producers ended up getting in touch with me, and I was interviewed by Oprah and Bob Green. And... I proceeded That's something everyone can say, Jill. That's cool. Now, how about, how about this? I proceeded to lie to Oprah and Bob Green. Um, and if you go back and you watch the footage, you could tell in Bob's face. He's like, yeah, nope. I'm nodding politely, but this person is not telling the truth. And, um, you know, so what did you lie about? Uh, just kind of what was causing my overeating. And, um, you know, I had self-awareness, but sometimes in life, you know, you can't kind of can't face the like biggest issues or whatever. And, um, you know, so for me, it's always been like size and how how one looks. Uh, I'm deeply camera shy. um, And even doing that was super hard. Um, And, you know, it's that idea of when do you have um, authority? And and that's another thing for a, a business owner, whether they're like starting or in the hard yards, doing that work to claim your your authority and your expertise. And, you know, I'm, I'm mostly there. I just did a series of six videos. um, And it was really, really hard. Um, Probably the hardest part of this whole journey. But, 
you know, my personal heroes are Fred Rogers, Linda Ellerbee. Yes. Um, and Julia Child. Linda and if I could be, I loved Linda Ellerbee. Remember her? I mean, just the way that she made things approachable and okay for kids and safe and not scary. I I would love to be the voice of that for food for kids. Um, so yeah, okay. call me. Um, call me. Hey, you mentioned you have 12 books coming out. What kind of books are you writing? Are you doing cooking books? Yeah, these are food literacy books. Um, they're for a younger audience, maybe like a a very advanced age four to about eight or nine. Uh, so they're all in single topics. And it's basically a fun food field trip in a book. So we go to an apiary and see how honey gets made. And, you know, so you sort of learn about it in the book. Cool. Then there's a recipe. The recipe has a QR code. So you can see it in action. Those are my videos I just did. Neat. Um, and then there's tons more information online, more activities and things like that. So it is strawberries, cookies, bread, Apples and pumpkins. Who's publishing it? Those are being done locally by Learner Publishing. That is so great. So uh, Learner Publishing comes to you and they're like, hey, Jill, we want to kind of do this. Or did you pitch it? I pitched them because I have my treasure trove of evergreen content. So no, as a business owner, you're never doing anything in vain. If you can find a creative way to reuse it, someone might buy it. So you repackaged it and said, hey, I'd like to do this. And they were like, sure. So my husband's an author. And you get an agent, and then the agent sells the idea to the publishing house. Is that how it works in your sphere? Uh, no. I, again, karmic design for me. Um, I learned boldness early, and uh, I was just laughing about this today. So if you need some um, positivity and learning how to ask for things, go Google Steve Harvey, uh, who has this great like YouTube video about just he who has it asks, right? And it's the gospel of Steve Harvey. Um, and, and that's it. Every point in my life um, where I've gotten myself into some kind of project, it's just being brave enough to ask. And do you self-talk? How do you practice in the mirror? Do you just go through it in your head? Do you just force yourself to do it? What's the magic for you? Um, you know, this sounds really weird. We're going to go to that woo play, Stephanie. Um, I feel like the universe tapped me on the shoulder I kind of feel like it too, Jill. I would laugh at I'd if you told me this like 25 years ago, I would laugh so hard and be like, "Uh, no." Um, I mean, I worked in DC. I had the kind of job where you wear pantyhose every day. I knew Mitch McConnell and sure. Elaine Chow by name. Sorry, yeah, and, sorry, and that's where I learned about integrity and that that knowledge of like what you think you say and you do need to be in tandem. That's the thing that can get me to do the thing that I'm scared to do. Like I know. Working, you know, on Capitol Hill wearing pantyhose every day is out of integrity for who I really am. And who I really am is talking to kids who are like isolated in a digital world in a video called After School Snacks, just shout them out and make them feel seen on planet Earth. Um, and that's enough for me to pick up the phone and, and be uncomfortable. Uh, and also, you know, the fastest way to yes is no. So just get up and do it. Yeah. And you usually like, I can't remember, someone said you have to get seven yeses before you, or seven no's before you get to the yes. I think seven was the number that sticks in my mind. Yeah. Um, the, the fun fact about that too is um, researchers say that you have to offer kids um, a new food nine times, generally before they try it even once. Okay. So if you've got picky kids, just keep putting it on the table and they'll eventually put some on their plate. So... In terms of, is this like, so you're, this is your full-time job. Like you make enough money to live and pay your insurance and drive your car and do the things you have to do with your publishing business. Uh, I would say almost. Um, 
you know, life sometimes deals you setbacks. Um, I was, I worked full time most of the years that I've been doing this. And um, I transitioned out of a full time job with the intention to do this. Then, of course, my ex-husband asked for a divorce right then. And that um, happens. Yeah. So, you know, I wasn't going to let that take the dream either. So it's just about persistence. I haven't missed an issue yet, despite um, that being really, truly a setback. Sure. Um, And And that is a setback. And I don't want to gloss over that because many of the people that I talk to that are entrepreneurs might have a partner that's in a traditional job setting that's providing things like the medical benefits and that steady paycheck that allows you to take time to figure out what your sweet spot is and take time to probably not have an income, take time to figure out what the monetary stream is and how you can live on what it is you actually make. It That's not to be taken lightly because when that goes away or when two people leave their comfy jobs and go into an entrepreneurship together, it's super stressful. Yeah. And uh, I've always been an ardent bootstrapper. I was okay launching to 27 people. And um, I've always been an ardent side hustler. So I negotiated with my employer to move to part-time hours. Uh, so some stability, but also you know the ability to, to play in the sandbox that I think is truly meant for me. How often do you work? To, like, do you just work on this all the time? Um, yeah, when I'm not sleeping. Well, you know, I don't know. I'm, I, I wish I could say that I was super diligent um, or that I didn't work in front of the TV, but oh, that's gosh, fine. I do. So. That still counts. About how many hours do you think it takes to put into each of the magazines? Because they're just beautiful. Oh, well, thanks. Um, I would say 20 hours for a butternut, more than that for an ingredient. Yeah, they're um, fantastic. But then it's it's that whole thing. Uh, if you build it, they will come. They will not. <laughs> so you got to, you know. How then, do you get subscribers? Um, I do have a website as well. So, you know, the the subscription agencies bring orders to me, um, which teach is great. TeachKidsToCook.com. Yep, TeachKidsToCook.com. Uh, so when most of the orders come from gift givers, so grandmas, aunts, yeah. um, uncles, because, you know, the... the uh, Magazine is the OG screen, right? Yep. No blue light, though. So, you know, I think people are looking for um, just respite, you know, an alternative to digital boredom where you're, like, doing something and making something. And food is um, a really good natural fit for kids. Well, I have really enjoyed talking to you. It's a great magazine. I would like to have you back on my Weekly Dish radio show where we talk about all things food because I think that... We've touched on a lot of issues here that a lot of people have, you know, baggage about food, whether it's about trying new things or whether, you know, you talked about healthy being a loaded word. Um, I am trying to, it's just, this is a terrible thing to admit about myself, but since we're in the trust tree here, I am trying to sort of take the word fat out of my existence, yet I often think of myself as fat, so I will be like walking down the street and I'll see an oversized person and think in my mind, oh my gosh, look how fat that person is. And I'm aghast. Like I cannot believe that that is all the further I've come. And the more I try to meet it, meet it where it's at or meet me where I'm at, the more I'm just entrenched. And maybe being aware of it is part of why it's bubbling up like that. And that's the first step to healing what has been a really ridiculous relationship for me and being so judgmental about people's size. I am so glad that like my daughter who's 20 and some of the younger women and men too that are coming up that 
they're just like that body positivity is mm-hmm. a real thing for them. They're not going to hate themselves their whole life because of their size. Yeah. I love that for them. And it's not at odds with, you know, quote unquote healthy. No. Um, uh-uh. It's the it's the other way that if you have the preoccupation, you know, I'm Ednos, eating disorder, not otherwise specified. Yeah. I probably am too. Who knows? I'm a binge eater. Okay. And so I've actually gone to therapy for that. Um, you know, my high weight was 264. Um, you know, there's a, a new Weight Watchers for kids and everybody and their dog has an opinion about it. Well, if you've never been fat, then you don't know. Yeah. You don't know. Um, I have, and um, I'm a work in progress. I was the same weight as Oprah. You know, it's all good. And um, you, you know, know how I knew, Jill, that I was like, seriously, like, okay, get a grip here. When I was in chemo, because I had breast cancer, and I was thin, right? Because I'd had chemo. I'd had like a million rounds. And I got back to my high school, like size six. And I remembered thinking, wow, I have really arrived. <laughs> and I just think like, <laughs> what? I was so ill. You know, I was literally in the middle of a super aggressive chemotherapy, and I felt like I'd arrived. That's just goofy. Right. It, it's that whole thing that sort of underlies what I do, that kindness matters. Yeah, and I really appreciate that. And I appreciate that we're putting different messages into the world for kids, because it does start early. Mm-hmm. It started early with our moms. I, my husband's mom's 86, and I just noticed the judgy way that her and her 80-year-old friends kind of think about weight. And they're all always on a diet. And mm-hmm. that was sort of the 70s tab generation, right? right? I want something different for our kids, and I'm so glad that you're putting that into the universe. So thank you. It is a pleasure. And um, like I said, I didn't pick it. It tapped on my shoulder. So yeah, there it I is. really think it did. I appreciate you being my guest, Jill. It is uh, Ingredient Magazine, teachkidstocook.com if you're interested in a subscription. And the podcast is Food Stories, and you can find it, I'm sure, wherever you get your podcasts.